And now, coming to you live from two socially separate, and let's be honest, geographically separate Gershwin rooms, high above totally different Cood Streets Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan, and oh, that's not very lively, is it? That was not a very lively beginning. <laughs> it's lively enough. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like, we're, uh, we're it's the COVID-19 opening. Kid. We're here. I'm Jonathan. Hi, Gary. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a post-apocalyptic Cood Street podcast. We're we're straggling along the desert. We're ninety uh, and, episodes and, into ten minutes of, and we got nothing in the tank. Well, um, we have lots of things in the tank. Um, the, the, the whole situation uh, reminds me of one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons of all time, and it may have been a Gay and Wilson cartoon, but it basically had a guy crawling across the usual image of a guy crawling across the desert in tatters and he comes across a, a big sign with a dot in the middle of it and nothing else and by the dot it says you are here um, and that's sometimes what i feel like fair enough well we're we were just saying because of course as long-time listeners to the podcast know we're always talking to each other that it's possible that in in these times of late june of 2020 when Black Lives Matter is on everybody's mind, when climate change is just coming back to t- talk to us again, when we're worried about COVID-19 and second waves and third waves and economic mm-hmm. collapse, maybe without ever setting those aside per se, everybody might be just a little bit tired of that for a moment and be happy if we talked about something else for a moment. Uh, let me put it this way. I think you're right. People are tired of hearing about it. But I hope people aren't tired of thinking about it and doing things about it. Very much, yes. I mean, uh, I, th- I, what I would say is that solely for the purposes of the content of this podcast, it seems reasonable to talk about something else, especially since beyond the critical importance of supporting black voices, the critical importance of fighting uh, climate change, the critical importance of working to repair our global economy and our global environment, the critical importance of supporting LGBTQ plus people, of acknowledging that trans men are men, trans women are women, trans people are people, and so on. Maybe for 50 minutes we could talk about science fiction from just a casual perspective. Well, from the perspective of of long-time readers. One of the things that I've discovered in talking to a lot of our friends on these 10-minute podcasts is that uh, a, a number of people are going back and reading things that they wanted to read. Very few people, almost nobody has talked about going back and reading classic science fiction. I mean, nobody has mentioned, uh, the, the, nobody that I've talked to has mentioned, I think it's time to revisit the Heinlein Juveniles, or maybe it's time that I should go back and uh, take another look at childhoods. People talk about reading mysteries they used to love. Uh, people talk about taking taking on Gravity's Rainbow or a kind of science fictionoid novel that they never finished, but I've I've found very little nostalgia for returning to a simpler time in science fiction. I have come across a little bit of it, a note or two. Yesterday, uh-huh. I was talking to Canadian science fiction writer Derek Kunskin, and mm-hmm. he was mentioning that he and his son, I think it was, were going through Asimov's Robots and Foundation fiction at the moment. Uh-huh. I think that's interesting. Because there is a certain, I'm trying to think about how I would put it, historical blankness to Asimov. 
there's a certain lack of effect in his fiction that means it's a bit Teflon-coated in time, a little bit. So I can kind of see why that might appeal. And I've had a couple of references, particularly to Clark in the last mm-hmm. while, not so much perhaps to say the more challenging disaster-based fiction of J.G. Ballard. And, you know, not a whole lot of references to Robert Heinlein. I mean, our mutual friend, the very wonderful Farah Mendelssohn, did a great book on Robert Heinlein mm-hmm. last year, and it's up for the Hugo this year, and voting will open someday. Um, but I don't hear anybody particularly saying, yeah, you're right, now's the time to go whip out time enough for love because it feels timely. Um but I do get little whispers of stuff around. I mean, it's a different era that people are feeling perhaps comforted by and nostalgic for. So. You know, people are going back and reading C.J. Cherry and Lois McMaster Bujold, mm-hmm. maybe in recognition of her Sifwa Grant Masters uh, just recently. So there are uh, things that people are going back and reading. And also, because I am old and because you are older, not to be rude about uh-huh. it, sometimes we lose track of how, how far back things are. So, you know... Uh, a book that was released in July of 1980, like, let's say, Orson Scott Card's otherwise unremarkable book, A Planet Called Treason, is 50 mm. years old this month. Not in 1980. A 1970 book is oh, no. 50 years old. 40 years old. 40 years old, 40 years old yeah. Feels 50 um, years old. Well, anyway. it's, it's one of the things I've often uh, noted, and I was looking at, uh, for example, the, uh, the, the quote-unquote golden age, or even if you take the pulp era and go through the golden age, you're talking about uh, classically a period of 20 years, which is almost 80 years ago. So most of what we think of as recent science fiction history is more removed from Heinlein than Heinlein was from Gernsback. Uh, the early history of science fiction, because it was such a narrow history, seems compressed. It seems like everything happened between roughly 1926 and 1950. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that's a tiny sliver of what's now science fiction history. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And this circles around a little bit the question that I was putting to you, which yes. w- which is, and which may be uh, out of fairness, I may answer on my own behalf to get us started. I don't know. Because <laughs> I've, gi- I've given it a full 12 or 15 minutes thought. Um, what is your personal golden age of science fiction? Not 13. Uh, unless it really was when you were 13, which I guess is fair, but kind of yeah. would be a to me, it strikes me as a sad thought in retrospect. I mean, 13 is when you're startled by something new and it makes a lasting impression. But if you're the golden age of science fiction was 13, well, I mean, I was 13 in 1977, right? And that means that everything that I read for the subsequent 40 years weren't part of my golden age of science fiction. And that's not how I see it. You know, my well, personal uh, go, you know, golden age of science fiction is a particular decade, and it's not an uncontroversial choice. At the mm-hmm. 2014 World Science Fiction Convention in London, my pick for the most transformative world con in the last 30 years, mm. I was talking to Kim Stanley Robinson, and I said that I loved the fiction of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Now, there are flaws in the fiction of the 80s, and I acknowledge them, and I intend to do so as I continue, but it was a remarkable decade, and he recoiled. He said it was a terrible decade. <laughs> awful, awful decade. Now, I suspect his reasoning has to do with his personal experience. There were political tumults in science fiction, as you may or may not recall, in that period, which I think made it quite unpleasant for some of the people who are participating. Mm-hmm. However, 
I turned 16 in 1980. I turned 26 in 1990. Between 1980 and 1990, Gardner, well, in fact, Shauna McCarthy finished her editorship at Asimov's, if I recall correctly. Gardner mm-hmm. does what assumed his editorship at uh, Asimov's in, 19, in the mid-1980s and commenced a, a lengthy career there where he made a, a lot of significant changes. Uh, during the 80s, Terry Carr published the New Age Science Fiction Specials, which launched William Gibson and launched Bruce Sterling and launched Michael Swanwick and uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and others. You know, it was a decade that kicked off with, if not the first woman to win a best novel, Hugo, one of the first women to win a best novel, Hugo, Joan Mm -hmm. DiVinci for The Snow Queen. Now, uh, the, the fiction tended to be, when I look back at it, garish and lively. I was at that time reading T.J. Cherry, who was about four years into her career. She was about to put out Down Below Station and other books which were fundamental to me and which had an enormous impact on me as a reader. Uh, Stan Robinson was in that first beginning part of his career. He was he was working on the Three Californias books. You know, he, I, I don't remember the exact year that Escape from Kathmandu came out, but there was a flush of wonderful short fiction as well from him. Greg Egan was starting his career uh, and had his first work out in the 80s. There were major magazines. Now, there were huge flaws, right? Let's, let's not even begin to say there weren't. Because well, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to argue with that. The one thing you've not mentioned which surprises me is anything that happened uh, in the wake of cyberpunk and Bruce Sterling and Bill Gibson and, uh, well, and well, John Shirley. And- well, it, here, here's the thing, right? I mean, I, mean I, I, I perhaps flagged it a little by referring to the new, new, new science fiction specials. But yes, and Omni was, was the dominant magazine of the time mm-hmm. through the first, certainly the first two-thirds of the 80s. I forget when it actually began to lose a bit of its ascendancy, but it was the predominant market. And yes, it, it saw cyberpunk come in, possibly as a response to Reaganism and Thatcherism, that, that, the Thatcherite mm-hmm. politics. So that was all fascinating and engaging and immediate and felt powerfully connective. You know, if you were, well, as a young Australian watching Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and dealing with that whole Frankie goes to Hollywood, two tribes go to war kind of a deal. Right, exactly. Then uh, cyberpunk seemed viscerally futuristic and of its time, even when it wasn't. I don't, I, I completely acknowledge that even though I was reading a lot of, well, I think a fair number of write, work, books by women at the time. Uh, it was not a time when women were getting the attention they deserved and they were underrepresented and they were, you know, the mm-hmm. fact was that, you know, I believe if the stories I've heard are apocryphally true, you know, uh, Bruce Sterling, when he was putting together Mirror Shades, felt he had to go and find a female cyberpunk writer because he didn't have any. And that's more a reflection on the flaws in the field than the flaws in cyberpunk or that or, or Bruce Sterling. Uh, and it's also interesting, speaking of Bruce Sterling, to think about the, uh, the manifesto, the, the Cheap Truth magazine, which began uh, as an all-out attack on science fiction of the 70s as having been a complete disaster yeah. and not dealing with the reality of the street and so forth and you so bet on. You. And you had a North American cultural memory that was still recoiling at and dealing with Vietnam. So mm-hmm. you have my dear friend uh, Jack Dan come out with one of the best anthologies of the last 40 years with his partner mm-hmm. at the time, Jeannie Van Buren Dan, in The Fields mm-hmm. of Fire, which was a spectacular book. You have Lucia Shepard, who's one of my favorite writers of all time, coming out and coming into his 
pomp with some of his strongest, the strongest work of his, of his life, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like R and R, these kind of things. So it seemed sitting in Western Australia that science fiction was vital and bright and fresh and new. The work that I had been familiar with, that I'd grown up with, that had been part of the 13 year old golden age, the work mm. of Heinlein and Clark and Asimov seemed kind of old and atrophied in 1980. The work that those people produced, I mean, if you look at the science fiction that Heinlein, Clark, Asimov produced, not so much Paul, who was much more vital in his later years, in mm. the early 80s, you know, we're talking about, I will fit, was it, was it, no, it was like, yeah. uh, it was like Friday, it was like Number of the Beast. I mean, these were, Number of the Beast is a terrible book, <laughs> you know. It was God Emperor of June, which is a terrible book. You know, so there's, it, and so what it felt like for me at 16 and 18 and 20 was that the science fiction of that time was incredibly vital. Now, of course, that obviously maps by, you know, chronologically, biologically to my own life. Oh, sure. And I'm also, like I say, deeply aware of the fact that in, at the end of the 80s, even in like 19, at the end of 1989, if you had asked anybody about uh, black voices in science fiction, they might have referred to, in fact, they would have immediately referred to Samuel R. Delaney, who I yes. think was caught up in the whole Nevriona series at that point. Or yeah, he may have moved not, away from science fiction into his kind of fantasy. And he may even have done, I forget the exact date on the stars in my, in, in my pockets, like grains of sand, but that was through that period. No, it was, mm-hmm. no, it was later, actually. So, yeah, so it was Nevriona was around that time. Um, the only other probably, I mean, like Octavia Butler had just commenced her career, is my recollection. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, I yeah. And the only other black American writer I was aware of in science fiction at that time would have been Stephen Barnes, who was working with Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell as a That's collaborator. Cool. So vastly underrepresented. And there was no real obvious um, queer science fiction presence at all, though I was oblivious to that despite being surrounded by the gay community, which goes to show just how oblivious I could be at 16 and 18 and 20, because <laughs> I totally was, and that was me. You know, the only author I really remember exploring in any particular way s- sort of uh, gender issues at that time from a very particular angle would have been John Varley. He would, would strike me as being the most prominent, as I recall, even though there were great books written during that time. This is the other, I mean, I I, I can look back and see for a a decade that I was invigorated by, um, and it was actually amplified for me because, and this is me being a genuine old fart here, Gary, um, invigorated by... Wait till I get started. (laughs) Invigorated by false scarcity, right? You know, I was living at the end of the world supply chain, so everything that showed up seemed exotic and amazing and mm-hmm. brilliant, right? So, you know, I remember crowding or you know, going to the one local specialty bookstore that I that existed in in Perth at the time, and you know they would get their monthly ship of books from America, and you would go in, and everybody, like a whole bunch of people, would come in, and you'd help and you tear open these cartons and do the press, and there would be like the new David Eddings book or whatever else. And this is when, like, Suzette Hayden Elgin is writing major uh-huh. work. And so is, you know, Joanna Russ is still writing and uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough and other people. I'm going to – Kate Wilhelm is, is laying down some genuinely mm-hmm. great work, and that's when I become aware of her work. And, of course, by, between 1980 and 1990, Le Guin 
just being Le Guin in the way that only Le Guin can be Le Guin. Though she did put out Always Coming Home, which baffled me then and baffles me now. But yeah, it was just an incredible decade. So, so for all those sort of reasons, and this is a time when it would never have occurred to me to be involved in the science fiction field, or that you could be involved. Just, it was this thing, and I loved it. Though I can also see it's flawed looking back. How about you? Well, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of ways of answering that, but the, the simple answer um, for me, it would, would, would have, I, I, this is giving away my age, which is 74. Everybody uh, send me birthday cards next March. But we're in the 50s, and the 50s for a couple of very specific reasons. Yes, I reached that magic age of, of 13, 12 to 14, but also um, this was when paperbacks became available everywhere. I could find paperbacks in my local drugstore. I could find paperbacks in the supermarket. I could find paperbacks in junk shops for a dime apiece. And I not only became aware of science fiction, I probably became aware of science fiction from reading library books when I was a kid. In fact, there was one book which uh, has kind of haunted me ever since that I must have read when I was eight or nine years old called Starship on Saddle Mountain. It's as far as I never, as far as I know, never been recorded. It was written, as far as I remember, by somebody whose unlikely name was Atlantis Hallam, um, <laughs> which I did look up, and that seems to be a real person with a real name. And it's an wow. absolutely absurd novel in which uh, somebody living out in Montana or someplace lives near a, a mountain range, and there's a saddle-shaped gap between two of the mountains, and and one night that gap is filled in by a giant alien spaceship. Um, it probably is, it's one of those things I've never tried to look up again because I really don't want to know what it's probably <laughs> like. But yeah. what happened in the 50s were uh, becoming aware not just of writers, I became aware almost at one time, within a period of a couple of years, of writers that I really liked who were basically, starting with Bradbury, there's a very clear memory that Bradbury was the first person I discovered. But then I discovered that all Ballantine paperbacks had really interesting semi-abstract covers on them by Richard Powers. So I learned to buy by brand. Um, I'd found Arthur Clarke. I'd found Theodore Sturgeon through Ballantine Books. I found Bradbury through Ballantine Books, the October Country. Um, and so I started actually buying books by brand. And by the time I was uh, in my mid to late teens, I had a pretty, pretty good sense that Ace books, and this is the time when Ace doubles were coming out, were good for one thing. They were good for adventure. They were good for what the cover uh, uh, Balagursky paintings showed they were. You know, you could, you, could, you could discover Conan that way, and you could read Fritz Leiber that way. Um, and uh, the, the, the two publishers that I became aware of that interested me less were Bantam, which was publishing kind of a general mainstream thing. And... Um, and the uh, New American Library Signet books, which were publishing Heinlein at the time. And Heinlein didn't interest me at all, partly because the books weren't nearly as interesting. They weren't as pretty as the Ballantine books. I, I, I came to Heinlein very late. Um, and then what, what eventually, and, and the other thing about Ballantine is that they were publishing everybody who was anybody at that point. Not only they had Bradbury, they had Sturgeon, they had Arthur C. Clarke, you know, they had uh, Fred Pohl's early uh, original anthologies, the star science fiction stories, which had original stories by William Golding and Jessamine West and people like that. So it, it was really a kind of sense that 
uh, if I would see a new Ballantine book. And they, did, they didn't come out at the rate of 20 a week. And I didn't have to wait for boatloads of them to come from the States like you did. Um, but I'd, I'd pick up books based on um, the publisher. And I was doing that by the time I was a teenager. I, I remember novels that I read um, but that, that by authors who have completely disappeared. There was a Ballantine novel by a, uh, an author named Robert Crane called Heroes Walk. And it's a post-apocalyptic novel, which I thought was pretty good. I doubt if it holds up very well today. But I became loyal to that um, up to a point, and uh, partly because of my loyalty to Ballantine Books when they started later producing the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series, I just bought everything I could get my hands on. Um, I, so, so, so that was that was the original period. That's, that's where I essentially established, um, I think, what, what, what my tastes were. And my tastes were probably more toward literary science fiction. And you're right. Uh, at the time, uh, the only um, uh, black writer that I could name would have been Delaney, although I did buy The Fall of the Towers when it came out from Ace Books, so I think uh, I was early on with that. And it, the funny thing is, I'd read his novels for two or three years before I realized he was an African-American writer. It was not something that was promoted by, uh, by Ace Books at the time. What happened later uh, is, is, is a little odd, because your decade, the decade of the 80s, was almost invisible to me for a couple of reasons. One is that I was reading... Uh, like everybody does in, in, in secondary school, you're doing tons and tons of reading because the stuff the school gives you to read is really boring, and so you have to find something to read. And the same thing was true during uh, much of college. Uh, but by the time I entered graduate school, they make you read a lot in graduate school at the University of Chicago. And for that period of time, I just had very little, uh, this is going into the early 70s, very little time to catch up with science fiction. Then I got a job. I spent uh, a lot of time reading science fiction in the 70s because I felt like I had to catch up with what I'd missed. Uh, and I was reading for a book I was writing at the time that came out in 1979. Uh, so I, I, I spent several years there just catching up with that. And then two things happened at the end of the 70s. This is way more autobiographical than it needs to be. Um, one is the only time I think I really OD'd on science fiction was writing that book. It was called The Known and the Unknown. It got well-received at the time, but I had just immersed myself in all the science fiction I'd missed during graduate school. And when I finished that, I thought, I just want to read Ernest Hemingway for a while. I want to read realistic, I want to read Raymond Chandler. I want to read stuff about you know the, the, the mean streets. Um, and the other thing that happened after that, so I, so I, I just veered away from science fiction. For, I've said what I have to say about science fiction for a while. And then a couple of years later, something else happened that just cut into my pleasure reading entirely. I was uh, became dean of the college I was in for almost a decade. Yeah. During, and this was a decade of the 80s, during which I got very little meaningful reading done at all. Yeah. Um, all I could do was come home at night, turn on, I believe the Carl Sagan version of Cosmos was still on, 
which I absolutely loved because Carl Sagan's sonorous voice would always put me to sleep <laughs> in front of the TV. I loved the series. I cannot tell you what happened during the last 40 minutes of any episode of Cosmos. No, there was lots of human beings and, and star stuff and cosmos. Billions and billions of And years. billions yeah. of human beings. Exactly. Yeah. Human. So, it's about so Y-E-W. Then, but yeah. Exactly. And so I, I had these odd on-again, on off-again things. I didn't get much reading done during the 80s. And when I finally sensibly left the deanship in the 90s, started doing the same thing I'd done earlier. I started trying to catch up on what I'd missed during the decade. Let me ask you, first of all, the, the first, well, what occurred to me during what you were saying, with mm -hmm. the 50s maybe being your golden age and the 80s being mine, is arguably our decades could be compared by the signature artists of their period. That could be. Because the signature artist, the artist of the 50s, as you describe it, and I think you're right, is Richard Powers. The mm -hmm. signature artist of the 80s, although I'm not comfortable with this, is Michael Whelan. I would... Uh, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I might, be, I might be willing to argue Leo and Diane Dillon. For the 80s? Uh, for the... Well, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe that would have been a little bit earlier for them. I'm, I'm thinking really of the Wyland uh, was Carr. undeniably like I would, I, I would fight you. We would have a street fight because Wyland comes along in the '70s and then through the '80s, every major book, if it's going to be a hit, it's got a oh, that's one of those English. one of those hyper real, uh, photographic looking uh, covers that he did for bestseller after bestseller after other book after other book, uh, winning I, I, Hugo I, 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 after I, Hugo after Hugo. You know, right? And, and, and but the thing is, his his style never really. Uh, changed. What fascinated Ooh, me. That's not really it. totally true. It did. Well, it I, did. I, I know he did. I have a big Michael Whelan. I know a lot of the gallery stuff he did to me is much more interesting than, than his book covers. See, I find in some ways the opposite true because he goes through a, there's a, he has a rougher style in the 70s. He hasn't yet mm. perfected that really photographic look that he brings in. I mean, probably, and I'd have to look up the timing on this. The last great cover uh, of the seventies uh, uh -huh. he did. If I have my time right, sorry, those were squeaky wheels and uh, things flicking. But yeah, one last one was the cover for Anne McCaffrey's *The White Dragon*, which right. has some rougher look in it than the stuff that came even just four or five years later. It's much more photographic. The personal work I find more new agey and yeah, whatever. Well, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's kind of abstract and uh, abstract thematically, not abstract visually. What it came to, to be for me, unfortunately, though, I, I mean, I adored his work for a long time. I have an original sketch over here on the wall mm -hmm. behind us. Um, was it began to feel to me a little soulless? And you know, if I was going to come up with a cultural comparison to Michael Whelan's art in the eighties, which will offend lots of people, so I shouldn't, but I will, it would mm. be Miami Vice. If Miami Vice was a signature TV show, if Wall Street was a signature movie for the 80s, Michael Whelan was the signature science fiction artist of its time. He also did some of the most breathtaking science fiction art of all time. And surely his cover for the paperback edition, I think it was, of Isaac Asimov's Foundation, Sedge, Foundation's Edge, mm. was one of the great Sense of Wonder book covers of all time. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that uh, he, was, he was very good at 
illustrating specific uh, and very believable scenes. In other words, when you read the Foundation's Edge thing, you could read the novel and you, you can see the cover. It appears in the novel. I guess what struck me about the slightly, what, what appealed to me about the slightly more abstract covers, uh, which includes some of the Dylan covers, is that they were more suggestive than illustrative. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't think really know what to, what to expect. Irrespective of whether Whalen can reasonably look, be looked at as a fine artist, and that's not something I'm commenting at all. I feel like Powers was a fine artist whose work got used got used as illustration, even though it was never illustrative of what he was doing largely. Mm -hmm. Same for the Dylans, uh, depending on the art, particularly that period for the eight, for the Ace books. Uh, but Whalen's was always illustrative. He was an illustrator. Yeah, what? And did some beautiful work. But you know, anyway, the other thing I was going to say, right? If if we've not mm -hmm. if we've kind of covered the fifties and eighties as much as what we're right now, and I don't have a lot to add other than that I still feel a great affection for the period is is there an argument is that i want to ask this question is there an argument that this is a golden age of science fiction that the oh. period from let's arbitrarily call it the early 2010s up till now could be looked on as a golden age for all of its flaws that the the post puppy period stir has 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 been remarkable and in many ways, I think it has been, and you can make a case. There has been some ter I mean, major work come out. I believe mm -hmm. that arguably, off the top of my head, the major established writers are putting out more impressive to me work right now mm -hmm. than the equivalent writers were in my golden age. You know, if I look at, I mean, the Heinlein Clark Asimov poll, uh, I mean, Paul always is his own thing. But Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, I don't think their work at that period was that impressive. But look at a Stan Robinson, who is, is the equivalent in age and uh, stature in many ways, is putting out major, major work still. Um, if you look at your, your Cherries and your Bourgeolds, and mm. if you look at your Chris Priest and your Mike Harris and so these people, major work still coming out from these people doing terrific stuff. So that's impressive. Well, you said that the, uh, despite all the flaws of the last 15 years, it might be a golden age. I would argue that it might be a golden age because science fiction finally began to address its flaws. Look, I um, think that, you know, I, mean, I mean, sort of asterisking that with the began, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. to me, one of the best things that's happening now is that when it comes to, to thinking about diverse voices, not only can I think about, can I, can I name check a range of diverse voices, writers mm -hmm. or writers from diverse backgrounds i don't feel like i'm naming them all you know it's like in 1985 if you had named octavia butler and steve barnes and sam delaney you'd think you've done or chip delaney you think you've done really well you've named everybody well now you start a roll call that you know that starts back with samuel r delaney who is still writing to you know not, mm -hmm. not frequently new, but he's still writing there's a new novel coming out that comes up to P. Jelly Clark and Toshi yeah. Onyabuchi and, mm. you know, whoever else. And people from different backgrounds that we didn't hear from very much, whether it be Saad Hussain or Indra Pamit Das or whether it be, you know, Nnedi Okorafor or whoever, right? So, and then more, far more queer voices and trans voices and all sorts of things. And the books themselves and the stories themselves, and this is the critical thing because to me, I don't know that I'm going to be swept away by diversity for, if you like, 
Well, if it was, okay, diversity would be would be be great, even if the work wasn't great. But the but there is great work coming from diverse voices, and so that's what makes it so impressive. If that sounds right, Uh, uh, no, I I agree. And I when I say that science fiction has addressed some of its or begun to address its flaws, it certainly hasn't taken care of it. I'm not just talking about the flaws in 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 terms of diversity or voices. I mean one one of the things I remembered noting about. uh, Joe Walton's book when she went back and looked at fiction of the 60s and 70s and she at some point was talking about um, Roger Zelazny's Lord of Light I just have been reading about Zelazny lately and she made a very good point she said that you know if that were to be published today there would be issues of cultural appropriation involved with you know trying to use Hindu mythology in a western fantasy novel but in 1967 or 68 or whenever it is, he gets points for just being aware that the rest of the world was there. <laughs> and I think that's a point. I mean, it's uh, true. The, the, the idea that um, that there was science fiction outside the United States uh, was something I remember, again, going through um, my childhood reading. I remember an anthology that Damon Knight put together of French science fiction stories, which were pretty good. Uh, but no, I'd never heard of any of the writers in them. Uh, you'd occasionally get uh, a Kobo Abe, who wins a Nobel Prize, tra- a science fiction novel translated. By and large, the idea that science fiction existed outside of uh, the U.S. and the U.K., and to some extent Australia, uh, is something that the, the field just didn't acknowledge. Another flaw, I think, that science fiction began to acknowledge was going back again to my childhood. And you were talking about, I forgot who you were mentioning, was reading Foundation's Edge with his kid. Part of the appeal of uh, Asimov and and Clark is that their style was not there; it was invisible. Yeah. Asimov yeah. used to call. It. In other words, it's very accessible fiction for a kid. There's no stylistic sophistication. There's no effort at stylistic sophistication. And when the few times they try stylistic sophistication, they shouldn't have tried because they didn't <laughs> do it. Um, and when 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 Heinlein decided to do that. He just went off the rails completely toward the end of his career. Yeah. But now you have uh, a recognition that, uh, and I think the new wave has to fit in here somewhere because the new wave was a stylistic and thematic rebellion against the flatness of affect of earlier science. Sure. And, um, and, and, and so was the work of Harlan Ellison. And so was the uh, work of Zelazny and many others. Now, the idea that science fiction can have a variety of styles and voices, um, and not, in addition to a variety of kinds of writers, international writers, writers of, of various genders, writers of various races, writers of, um, that science fiction also recognized it's stylistically, it doesn't have to be just a new wave. It doesn't have to be weirdly experimental. Stuff doesn't look, doesn't have to look like Ballard. Um, and stuff doesn't have to look like Heinlein. It can look like anything. And my, my, my favorite example of this, of a living writer right now, remains Lavi Tidar, yeah. who just pulls stuff from everything he's ever read. <laughs> and, and I think that's true. There's nobody quite like Lavi. I mean, look, I, I was thinking about this. If the 80s, particularly for me, the mid-80s, were a particularly exciting period, in many ways right now is the single most exciting time in science fiction I can remember. I find it more exciting to me than almost any other time. Uh, There are writers to hear, stories to find, voices to encounter coming from 
so many different places in so many different ways that I constantly feel like I, you know, I'm surprised and invigorated by what I'm finding. You know, there are writers of great comfort fiction. There are writers who challenge you in ways you wouldn't expect to be challenged. The magazine field, which has always been critical to the uh, imaginative health of science fiction, is in many ways doing at least creatively very, very well. You can't not look at Clark's World and Lightspeed and Uncanny and what's been happening at uh, Asimov's and Analog and FNSF and genuinely think, oh, and Strange Horizons and Fire and Fireside right. and so on and Beneath Ceaseless Skies and Apex and Interzone and see and, 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 right? Well, now, when you say you that, are you talking, Are you how narrowly are you using the term science fiction when you talk about this, this sort of new golden age? Oh, not at all. I, I mean, I, I don't think that a narrow originalist interpretation of science fiction, whatever the hell that would be, um, is a useful one right now. I think we live in no, a... No, I'm agreeing with you completely, but I, I think what I find frustrating about the current age is that, um, yes, I can continue to find science fiction that looks just like the science fiction I read as a kid. It's still being written, and that's sure, fine. Yeah. Uh, there's there are a lot of very good writers who have no problem writing uh, slam bang adventure science fiction, um, and, and I mean Alistair Reynolds' Re the Revenger sequence is uh, a good example of that. I think I, the Martha Wells Murderbot stories are just enormously entertaining, among other things. But when you start getting uh, out to the edges, I it, it, science fiction bleeds into fantasy. It, it, it bleeds into horror. That's a bad metaphor, I suppose, but. Um, and there's so much stuff out there. I keep finding uh, completely new writers that I can't keep up with everything. And that's of a course. good thing. It is a good thing. Uh, I it, mean, it, it, it's, it's a delightful thing. But uh, I, I, I just think that there was a time when you were either a science fiction reader or a fantasy reader. And you have to be really kind of narrowly focused to be one of those these days. I don't know. Well, okay, you, of course you can. Anyone can be anything. And any reader can be whatever oh. they want to be. But... I think taking a minimalist view of science fiction simply denies you much of the richness of what science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy, horror, whatever else you want to group together uh, is today. You know, you can't read The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday and split it between whether it's a fantasy or a science fiction story, and mm -hmm. it's not a useful thing to do. You know, well, you can't. And yeah, sorry. Uh, the, that I think is I'm mean, not 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 now you're making me formulate a theory on the spot. That may have been the major shift in science fiction over the last fifty years or so, mm -hmm. uh, and that is that for the the generation again go back to my childhood generation, the, for people like Clark and Asimov and Heinlein and Bradbury and all the way through uh, up to uh, the the '60s. I mean you can go John Brunner and 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 Ellison and so forth. For decades, writing science fiction meant writing within a genre. The genre contains the work. Um, and since the, I'm going to say the 90s probably, I'm not sure when this trend happened because it didn't happen all at once. But now it seems that there are fewer writers who believe they write within a genre and more writers who believe that their novel incorporates the genre. In other words, the, the fiction is dominant now. Whereas 50 years ago, the genre was dominant. Maybe. Maybe I'm, I'm convinced. I mean, I certainly agree that that is a predominant 
way of thinking right now. I don't believe, I could be wrong, uh, and I'm not trying to put words into their mouth, please, mm-hmm. but I don't believe that Charlie Jane Andrews uh, is particularly concerned about whether it's, you know, passes a litmus purity test that her work is science fiction or fantasy. I think uh, Charlie Jane takes what works for her story and does it. Mm-hmm. I think that is true, uh, as true probably in a, a different ways, but as true for P. Jelly Clark as it is for Aliette de Bodard, as it mm-hmm. is, you know, for older writers who are evolving and changing what they do. I mean, I will say I'm still enormously attracted, unfortunately, to definitions and cladistics. You know, I want to be able to look at something and go, is it science fiction? Is it hard science fiction? Is it social science fiction? It, as Even though I completely acknowledge that in 2020, it's not very meaningful or useful, really, to talk about those things. What's well, really it useful? Yeah. It, may be, it may be useful for you because if you're editing a book, which is a robot book, for example, you tend to look for stories that look like science fiction. Well, Don't well, well, maybe. I guess what I'd say is if I'm editing a book like Made to Order about robots, I'm looking for something yeah. that has something that can be genuinely reasonably called a robot. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm super concerned about how the robot is animated because the right. how it's animated is what makes it science fiction. You know, in many ways, a golem is just a, a supernaturally uh, powered robot. Well, and one of my favorite stories in your anthology was Sophia Samatar's collection of fairy tales for robots, which just went back to every um, everything she could find from, from fantasy literature and mythology and so forth and so on that sort of looked like a robot. <laughs> and so she was she was writing a story about the idea of robot, even though the term only appeared 100 years ago. Uh, and yeah, so you can write a fantasy story about robots, no problem, or a, a story with fantasies about robots in it i do wonder though if you want to talk about when did this begin you need to roll you know, whether you have to roll your timeline back further than you're allowing because first of all i think it happened in other forms of storytelling more readily i'm not Dead. that familiar but i suspect if you go back to the history of comic storytelling it's largely been a blurry mess in terms of dividing science fiction and fantasy Mm-hmm. I also think probably one of the progenitor writers of our time in some ways is your old friend, Phil Farmer. Mm-hmm. And that when you look at the work that he did through Riverworld and around that, a lot of that begins to look like it has the same stuff to it. And then the person who I always thought as being, you know, sort of the, 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 the knockoff version of Phil Farmer, Jack Chalker, uh, was also very <laughs> popular and did the same kind of thing. And there was a whole string. In fact, through the 80s, you can begin to see this growing thing of blurring. And there's always this thing sort of over there. Now, it's just the time. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think a golden age should be more than just uh, an origin, a time of uh, origin. Quite often we look back to the origin times and go, that's the most exciting because that's when something's brand new. Well, um, yeah, in that sense, the old golden age would have been 1890 to 1900 when, when you think about H.G. Wells pretty much set out the template for alien invasion stories and time travel stories and vivisection stories and moon stories and so sure. forth. That was a golden age, but it was a, basically a one-person golden age. And yeah. But I mean, um, have, have, have the... the you know, do we have a crop of writers who've been writing for 40 years 
who are still producing vital work. And I think we do. I really oh, think we, we do. do. Okay. I mean, last year, two of the, you know, several of the best books were by people like Michael Swanwick or Stan Robinson mm. or uh, Lois Bujold. Go back a couple of years, Connie Willis, whatever else. So there are people, uh, Nancy Kress. You talk about writers who've been writing for a long time. But are we also, first of all, seeing more new voices bubble up that seem exciting and fascinating all the time? And we are. You know, I mean, I realize that particularly because of the current um, climate, the pressure mm-hmm. on marketing and sales is great. And that means that, you know, we can argue whether financially it's going to be a golden age for anybody. But on all of the other metrics, it seems like the case is there. You know, I'm surrounded by books that come from the last year, two, three years, Gary, right? And whether it's, you know, the space opera of an Arcadie Martin, whether it's, Mm. you know, who's only, you know, at the beginning of her career, or whether it's an Elizabeth Bear, who's actually a jolly good long way into her career and has a lot of major work behind her. I was going to make Elizabeth Bear, I was just uh, looking up, because when you talk about people who have longevity, yeah, there are certainly writers who have uh, very long careers. And, I mean, uh, I mean, Larry Nevin has is, is, is got a new novel out in collaboration with Benford. But when you talk about the newer writers, I and this is partly my fault, I keep still thinking of new writers, and I was just noticing, for example, that Nettie Okorafor, who in most of our minds is a new writer, her career goes back almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the Zara the Windseeker, I think, was 2000 or 2001. Yeah. Uh, and so that's not a new writer, and she's certainly as busy as ever these days. If not busier, because not busy. she's hit that stage of her career where she's really in her pump. I think it's fair yeah. to say, you know. And I think one of the things that happens with a writer like Nettie that never really happened with uh, with earlier generations is that 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 career now involves comic books, it involves screen treatments, it involves miniseries. In other words, there are chances, there are opportunities that younger writers have today, uh, especially very versatile ones like Nettie, that were probably not available 40 or 50 years ago to yeah. science fiction. You couldn't move into comic books easily. It was its own thing. You certainly couldn't move into movies very successfully. And, of course, there's a plethora of writers, both well-established and in the early fledgling parts of the careers, that we haven't mentioned. People we've talked to in the no. in the thousand minutes of uh, short podcasts, uh, people that we've talked about to you know, at different times, people who are the favorite writers of people who are listening right now who we've never mentioned. Absolutely. There's always more and more and more. So actually, you know, for an old guy who's drowning in books, it's never been a better time. I mean, mean, we we didn't even mention, ah, we didn't mention Nora Jemison. We didn't mention, you know, Mm -hmm. on and on and on. So it's a heck of a time. So yeah, the 80s are 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 my personal emotional golden age, but I think that this may be the true golden age. I, I, I distrust terms like golden age. Of course, in they are. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of these sales things. terms. I mean, it could very well be that uh, um, uh, 20 years from now, we will be thinking back, why didn't we see what the career of P. Jelly Clark or Kaya Shanti Wilson or River Solomon was going to look like? They could be the giants 20 years from now. Uh, and it's entirely, it's very, one of the things I think is exciting about an era in which a lot of new writers enter the field is that 
you don't know which ones are going to last. I mean, no. we, it, it would be mean to talk about some very promising writers who wrote brilliant novels 10 and 15 and 20 years ago and who have disappeared. But there are some, and you and I could both name some. Oh, sure. Uh, and and, and as, it's also true that, that sometimes, in fairness to, to all the writers out there, well, first of all, sometimes... Sometimes it's just true that some, somebody writes a book or they write two books or four books and that's what they do. Sometimes the market deserts them, which is sad. And of course, the, one of the great, well, sev- there have been several great financial and publishing shifts during my observation period. I mean, I talk about the 80s, arguably one of the more toxic things that happened in publishing mm-hmm. starting then, even though I didn't see it that way, was the rise of the trade paperback, which started then and began to have a flow-on negative effect over time eventually, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, starting from the mid-2000s, I guess, the, you know, the disappearance of major chain bookstores and all that sort of thing. Those have had major impacts in other ways. And they've undercut and killed off the mid-list in a way that's been far- harmful so that writers who would have had, you know, more prominent careers as they've gone on, have struggled to because the the, the publishing fiscal middle list has abandoned them, you know. Well, that's true, but I think that dates back to uh, and I, I remember talking to some publishers about this and being corrected. So I will pass on the way in which I was corrected. Uh, it, it it wasn't uh, it wasn't the disappearance of all the bookstores. It was in fact the rise of the chain bookstores of the Walden books of the uh, B Daltons of all the bookstores that basically would not stock any. Uh, mid-list writers at all. So the the, the dominant chain bookstores, uh, prior to the rise of uh, B. Dalton's and Borders, which Borders is now gone and B. Dalton's is now collapsing, uh, but prior to that, um, the the, the mid-list, the idea of going into a bookstore and finding uh, books that were published three and four years ago uh, was something that disappeared with the chain bookstore. One of the things I remembered uh, again, as a kid, was when I first moved to Chicago, anyway, was I could go into a, a bookstore downtown in the South Loop called Crocs and Brentano's. It was related in some vague way to Brentano's in New York and find a complete set of the modern library books there. And all, all of Faulkner and all of Hemingway and uh, the, the, the classic horror anthology, yeah. uh, the classic science fiction anthology, uh, they would all be there and they were always there. You could always depend to go into a bookstore and find those. Uh, once those giant bookstores began to shrink and appear in shopping malls, then you had only a few bestsellers and cookbooks and self-help books and that sort of thing. And then those chains disappeared. So, I mean, everything has been bad for the industry since, <laughs> what, 19, since, since 1870, let's say. Um, but by and large, um, I think you're right. I think, I, I think that the rise of, um, the trade paperback probably was not a good thing because, again, at one time, that was a prestige version of a paperback. Yeah. And now it's a cheap version of a hardback. So I think with nothing to talk about, we've agreed the 50s and the 80s were good, but we're pretty impressed with right now. That's not a bad mm-hmm. way to look at it. Let me ask you before we wind up, because there's only an hour of this is a blessing to everybody rather than endless podcasting. We do that elsewhere. Um been reading anything good this week um well i've already mentioned I, it, it sounds like i'm boasting that i read piranesi but i'm haunted by that book i keep coming back to it um yes i've read a couple of other interesting things i um i'm at the moment trying to 
squeeze another book into my column this month, which is actually due today as we were speaking, and it's it's not done. Um, but what was it that I? Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I I just had a perfectly enjoyable um, read of. Oh, I know what it was. This is fascinating. We should spend more time talking about. Uh, the Newcom Press is doing a series of, I guess, batches of novellas, and 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 I've only seen one or two of them because they've only started showing up. There's a thing by Justina Robson, which is really it should be really interesting to you because it looks like something uh, that directly addresses all the issues and made to order. Um, it, it's it's a robot novella that has really nothing terribly original to say about robots, but it says what it says very well. And it's from the point of view of uh, an artificial intelligence. And I think that uh, the idea that, I mean, it's, 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 it's an exercise more than anything else. It's fragmentary. Some of it works, some of it doesn't work. <clears throat> but it's fascinating to, uh, to see somebody sort of reworking a classic science fiction theme like that. And she's always been a fascinating writer, I think. Um, so this is something that, I enjoyed. I just started. I Locus sent me a new collection of Jane Yolen's dark stories. Awesome. <coughs> called the Midnight Circus. The circus, yeah, yeah. From uh, and Tachyon, so that's, yeah. Uh, Tachyon and, and Tachyon is doing some really interesting things they these are. days. They are. So, so I think I'm encouraged by Tachyon. I'm encouraged by Small Bear, by Subterranean, by all the small presses that are continuing to get books. More and more noticed. I mean, I have no idea what the sales figures are, but I noticed that more and more of these books are showing up in PW recommended lists. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So forth and so on. So the small press has kind of, um, I think, fulfilled its promise. Uh, look, I think you know, there's a, 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 a plethora, a spectrum of great publishing. I mean, in the mail this week, Gary, I received my mm -hmm. personal copy of The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Moonlight. Sorry, in water. In water. The Pure Moon Reflected in the Water by uh -huh. Zen Cho, a book that I edited. But it's such mm -hmm. a pretty book, Gary. I mean, like, it's really pretty, and I'm really happy well, with the, it. The arc was attractive. That, I've seen you want to see that, the hard, you want to see the hardcover. I want to see the hardcover. It's well, really you, you, cute. Yeah, show it, to, show it to our audio listeners, why don't we? I'm just going to hold it up now for the camera, <laughs> okay, right? right? <laughs> and, I mean, well, admittedly... The thing. I mean, yeah. But, but here, here's the other thing about that cover. Uh, more and more of science fiction and fantasy books are being given covers that are not rocket ships and dragons. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's, it's a cover which very, if, if it's a version of the one I saw, it very is. much reflects the theme of the story and yet doesn't try to identify the story as a genre. Uh, and I, I think that's a healthy thing as well. See, now I'm holding it up for the camera, Gary. There it is. It's this beautiful little hardcover uh, th about this... This queer, wuxia romantic comedy, it's great. I mean, I love the book, and I, I love the, the physical you know, appearance of it. I've mainly been reading because I'm a little behind on my work. <clears throat> uh, I've mainly been reading uh, on published things. I've just been reading uh, Fireheart Tiger by Elliot de Bodard, which uh -huh. is a new novella that will come out next year that everybody should be looking forward to if they have any sense at all. It's a terrific story, and really lovely and romantic and adventurous and funny and great. And I've just started reading the album of Dr. Moreau. And the album of Dr. Moreau is a, <laughs> Oh, what is it? It's a, <laughs> I, 
a Dr. Moreau Korean boy band uh, murder uh, story thing by Daryl Gregory, which no one knows about yet. So, oh, good. It hasn't been announced I'll, I'll, yet. I'll much. add one other thing because I know you've already read this and I, I didn't think of it because I haven't written a review of it yet, but I had. I had an enormous amount of fun with Alex Harrow's second novel. Such a good book. Uh, Once in Future Witches. And it's it, it's one of those novels. Uh, actually, her first novel had the same effect on me, where you begin reading a novel and thinking, this, I, I think I know where this is going, and can she bring it off? And then it doesn't quite go where you think it's going, and it comes off much more engaging then it, it, it's it's one of those novels that gets more engaging as you get further into yeah, it i guess yeah i posted a thing on social media where i said as of the moment based on what i've read the three books of the year for me are toshi on riot baby uh mm. stan robinson's the ministry for the future which and, is on my list and uh alex harrow's the ones of future witches those three books summarize 2020 in just about every way i want it summarized i feel like i can understand that uh, I, can, I can see that entirely. Not the only books worth reading, but essential books that if you, you know, the Onyabuchi book, if you haven't read it, I cannot recommend highly enough. It's wonderful, beautifully written, powerful, angry, engaging, short, dynamic, terrific. Um, Stan Robinson's book is the culmination, as you know, of 40 uh -huh. years of a career with all of the skill and artfulness and thoughtfulness and grace that he can bring to it. And... Uh, Alex Harrow's book is this wild, pagan, boisterous, engaging fantasy that's just terrific. It's, yeah, uh, there seems to be a thing I was noticing this by sheer coincidence. One of my other favorite books so far this year was Liz Williams' Comet Weather, which also deals with three sisters who are more or less witches in contemporary Britain mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm so on so th that'll be fun to look at i mean i've got I've, the other things i've got uh sitting on my ipad or whatever my new ipad kindle no my new kindle white actually uh is the new uh, joe abercrombie's sequel to a little hatred yeah i want to read that so bad it's, I'm, I'm, that's next on my list um and just to go back to what you were saying about the books of the year uh one of the things that strikes me about um the books I like that are, are things that are unclassifiable. I mean, when you talk about something like, oh, the Ministry of the Future, we know that's going to be a really good science fiction novel. It's going to be well thought out. It's going to have the It's going to have characters in it that uh, I've, I've started reading it, and immediately I recognize this front character. But in, anyway, I won't get into that. I'll go back to Piranesi, though, because of all the novels I've read this year, it is least like any other. Uh, and it doesn't fit into it do, doesn't satisfy anybody's expectations for anything because it's a unique act of imagination, and we see that too rarely. Yeah, um, I know people. I know people are going to think, well, I wanted to see Jonathan Strange Jr. and Mr. Yeah, Norrell's yeah. nieces, uh, and and I suspect she was working on that at some point. I I really admire a writer who takes a completely different direction from what's expected, whatever the reasons for that direction. These are good times, but... They are. They're, they're, there are more unexpected novels than ever, and that, to me, going back to the Golden Age thing... That's what, what makes it a Golden me, Age? What Exactly. What made me fall in love in science fiction in the first place was that each new book would be completely different from beginning. Yeah. I started reading Bradbury, and then I found Clark is nothing like Bradbury. 
He has no sense of prose at all in Bradbury. And, and, and Heinlein is nothing like... Uh, so everything is different, and people can still do things that are completely new and different. The one, th the one writer I keep coming back to who did this throughout his career, starting in the 40s or maybe the 30s, was Theodore Sturgeon. Yeah. Because in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and probably up until the time he died, a new Sturgeon novel would be like nothing else uh, that you'd seen. And now we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of mm -hmm. writers who do whatever they want to do, and I think it's delightful. These are good times. But these are the end times, Gary, at least the end of this episode of the Creed Street Podcast. So it's time oh, to wind up and call it a day. <laughs> As we speak, my president is holding a um, COVID-19 oh. rally. Uh, and I don't, I dare not turn on the television to find out what's happened by now. So yes, these are the end times, but you know what? Science fiction has been there. We know how to handle that. Until next time. Until next time, this has been the Coon Street Podcast.